represent two languages, that's Luganda and English. We'll start with Luganda. Iokane soka, rodinyo roksa tupaka kuroku minolumu. Ela kuchino kutegeleranga mutegede. Botu kwa atabida gilovye. Ayogena anti mutegede na ata kwa atabida gilovye ya mulimba. Na mazima tegali muoyo. Na yebuli akwata echigambochi. Mazima hukwagala kwa katonda. Akumazo kutukilizibwa muoyo. Kuchino kutegelela ngatuli muye. Ayogela ngabela muye chimugwanira. Na yeye njini hukutambulanga ilanga buwaya gala. Abagara, siwa wandi ishila chila gilo chino. Wabula, ishila gile cheda. Chemualina okuva mulubelebele. Ishila gile echo cheda chechigambo chemuawulida. Nate mbawandi kila ishila gile chidja. Ishigambo chama zimamu ye. Nemumwe. Kubanga kiliza ishigwa ono msano guwama zima kakano guwaka. Ayogela ngalimu sana anacha wa muganda we. Ngachari mchizikiza. Kakano ayagala muganda we abela musana ilate wali chumwesitaza. Na yacha wa muganda we alimchizikiza ilata ambulira mchizikiza ngatamanyi. Gonna read in English. First John two, verse three to eleven. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says I know Him but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends and neighbors, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old, this old command is the message you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the truth and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister. Sorry. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or a sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is the word of God. That was awesome, Lily. Thanks. We can give her a round of applause, you guys. <laughs> Father's Day, root beer for breakfast. It's the best. My kids blessed me yesterday. It's a pretty busy day for us on Sundays. So yesterday they got me a, a climbing pass to Mira, to Mira Rim or Mesa Rim, whatever it's called. It's kind of a new OCD thing for me. Climbing is like my brain latches onto it. It requires technique and strength and there's progression all the way forever. My brain is just, they know I go OCD on this stuff. So 
of course, they're going to help my addictions, uh, which is awesome. So I just want to uh, say this before we get started for all the fathers and men in this room. I think one of the most wonderful things about our current cultural moment is uh, the liberation and the honoring and the strengthening of women. You'll note, if we go and watch most of our movies these days, there's a lot of women heroes and a lot of women's strength manifested. I think it's beautiful. I think it's so important. I also think there's a real danger to diminish the role of a holy and a gentle and a compassionate masculinity and a fatherliness. And at the end of the day, gentlemen, you've been given a unique strength to bear a certain load for your circle of influence, for your friends, for your family members, for your workplaces. And I do want to challenge you and commission you today as men to bear that mantle of responsibility and to speak blessings over the people in your life. What this world hungers for more than anything is the blessing of a father. It's what we're longing for, to hear our dad say, well done, I'm proud of you, I love you, I delight in you. I've started doing this with my son and my kids in general. I'll grab them by the shoulder, look them right in the eye, and then I'll speak some super awkward blessing, making them look me right in the eye, and they're like, <laughs> just like, no. <laughs> but it's what our souls long for more than anything. So if you're a man in here, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and say, I bless you in the name of the Father. Just do that right now. I bless you in the name of the Father. And if, if we're sitting with just all girls, gentlemen, to all, the, to all of our sisters, speak to all of them. If you're just sitting with a group of girls, yes. Yeah. Just that little bit of joy, just that little bit of speaking blessing. I bless you in the name of the Father. This is what we're called to as men. And so I want to encourage you, gentlemen, um, more than ever, this world needs strong women, yes. This world needs strong men. Do not let this culture diminish who and what you have been made to be. Do not let yourself be made a mockery of. Do not become a caricature. Be a man, strong and courageous. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, please, this day now as we enter into this text, may you continue to develop Neighbors Church. May we be a community of love spread throughout the city of San Diego. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to do the work that only you can do in each of us today commissioning each of us to our particular responsibilities. And we pray just that fathers today would fill a sense of responsibility, a sense of encouragement, a sense of hope and joy that they indeed have been given a specific place to do the work of the kingdom. So go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Not going to lie, this root beer is making me want to burp. And so I'm going to take one more sip. Mid-prayer is like, oh my gosh, here it comes. <laughs> this is not going to be professional at all. <laughs> Welcome to Neighbors. January 1st, 1998. I had come to know the true and living God over 25 years ago now. I can't even believe that. Uh, just prior to January 1st, 1998, about three years prior, I found myself in a psych ward, a place called Canyon View. Uh, my friends had taken me there, and basically they locked me up in there for seven days and then three months of intensive treatment for drug-induced psychosis. And my time in uh, Canyon View introduced me to the world of AA and NA and something that I'd never heard of, a higher power, a higher power, a God who could heal me and who could help me with the issues that I was dealing with. 
Now, the years post Canyon View, my AA, NA days, I kept drinking <laughs> like a fish and occasionally using. I just couldn't get out of that world. And so that, the years preceding Canyon View were really a long search for my higher power. Uh, I, it's sort of in my mind from 19 to 21, just this sort of drunken, drugged haze. And it was filled with New Age spirituality, some Eastern concepts there for a while of deity, reincarnation. I found myself chasing a rabbit with one of my buddies through the deserts of Idaho on LSD, chasing our animal totem. We knew that this rabbit was going to lead us. I mean, weird, weird stuff. I got into aura reading. I was one of those guys for a while. I see your aura. It's blue. It's whatever. And then for quite some time, I got into uh, a very deep dive into, um, with a group of former heroin addicts, uh, something called the Celestine Prophecy. And that's how I came to know Jesus. So there you have it. Uh, it was a wild ride. But I can tell you, January 1st, 1998, without equivocation, that night, the search was over for me. I knew that I knew I had found the living God. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew for the first time in my life, oh my gosh, I am, I am loved. I remember laying on the floor in this garage in Hazleton, Idaho, and I was one of those conversions where I was shouting at the top of my lungs, I'm saved. I literally believed that night that the God of the universe had saved me from killing myself. Now, it was actually my future wife because I had zeal squirting out of my ears after I became a Christian who unintentionally knocked me off my spiritual high horse at one point before we were even dating. I remember telling Alexis in this moment of passion, I love God so much and he loves me so much and, and this is what God's going to do with my life and this is who God is and, and I want to be a martyr for God. And Lex just sat there very calm and very politely said, that's all amazing. I'm so excited for you. But Dan... You haven't been tested yet. To which I responded in my mind, well, she just obviously doesn't know God like I do. <laughs> I was very prideful in my response, but there was something in the moment where I was like, wait, 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 hold on. What does she mean? I haven't been tested yet. I know God loves me. I know God has a plan for my life. I know all the stuff. I've arrived. I'm ready to rock and roll. What does she mean, I have not been tested yet? And so for me, what I now know 25 years later is that as a brand new believer, and even for many years into my Christianity, I just didn't have a category for what we've come to call desert seasons or dry seasons for unmet expectations. I did not have a category for unanswered prayers. And I certainly didn't have a category for ongoing suffering after the creator of the universe had saved me. Now, jumping forward a quarter century later, I have been tested. <laughs> and I can tell you that in my testing over these many years, there have been so many times, countless times at this point, where I have asked, who are you, God? Do I even know you? Did I just miss it? Am I just off in who I thought you were, who I thought I am, what I thought we were going to do together? And it's because for most of us as believers, whether new or maturing, we usually tend to envision our journey with Jesus, and it's all smooth sailing. He answers our prayers like a genie in a bottle. He fulfills every wish and desire. All of our dreams come true because God loves us. What else would he do? But the Christian journey, friends, is actually, as we're saying throughout this teaching text, for the entire summer, the Christian journey is a total transformation project of everything that we thought we knew to be true about ourselves and about God. 
The God that we think we know for the most part is usually a God of our own making. And so the disorientation of our lives in and with God is actually a radical reorientation of our entire being. And it's a reorientation to knowing the true and living God as he actually is and as we actually are before him. What God is doing in this total transformation project is he is untangling our souls from the world and our flesh and the devil. He begins to reprioritize very intentionally and very carefully and very specifically our perspectives on life and the world. He births dreams from his will and not our own will. And through it all, through what we experience as pain and confusion, a sense of loss and disorientation, we are coming to know God for who he actually is. And this, dearest church, is a dangerous journey. Christianity has taught throughout history that this journey of total transformation, it is fraught with wrong forks in the road, obstacles and attacks and pitfalls that can lead to self-destruction. So along the way, as Christians in the journey of total transformation, there are checkpoints where we need to stop and do some serious soul work, some serious self-assessment. Paul would exhort the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You have not been tested yet, Dan. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Do I, do we know God? Are we believing and behaving in accord with who he actually is, or have we drifted? Are we just tagging Jesus' name onto our will instead of actually surrendering to his will? Are we subtly following the gods of this world, or worse yet, the God who is called self? How do we know this morning that we know the true and living God at any juncture in our journey, be that the beginning or on our deathbed with him? John was refuting a group of false teachers, and these false teachers had neglected to examine their belief structures and their behaviors, and they were literally failing the test that Paul exhorted the Corinthians to take. They claimed to know God, but they were proclaiming a small g God of their own making, their own imagination, and therefore they were proclaiming lies, and they were ultimately lost. In his refutations of these false teachers, John pastorally gives all of his communities, both 2,000 years ago and today, the assurance that you and I can indeed know God and discern if we're on the right path. Three tests for knowing God this morning. What we believe, who we're becoming, how we love. One more time. What we believe, who we're becoming, how we love. In the face of false teachers and these distorted messages, John assured his people We know that we have come to know him if. We know, you and I know today, that we have come to know and are knowing the true and living God if. Now, what follows that contingent text there, if, are three points of self-examination, starting with what you and I believe. Remember, John opened this letter by relaying the facts of the gospel. He had touched and heard and seen the living God among humanity and fleshed in Jesus as a literal, historical, physical event. John the Apostle had sat under Jesus Christ's direct teachings. He was at the crucifixion. He saw the empty tomb. John the Apostle encountered the risen, living, breathing Jesus. And it was this message, it was this good news that God had purified all of his people's sin 
the reality that the creator had come and done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It was this message that John was calling all of his communities to root their lives in, to make the very center of their existence, to make the foundation and the capstone and the roof and the structure of their belief system. Belief in Jesus as our representative, as our champion, as our victor, as our savior, as our friend, as our brother. Belief in his resurrection, trust in his physical, literal resurrection over death. This is at the core of our belief systems. And it's the message, the message that John intended all of his communities to believe. Now, let's just do a little work here. Every single human, you and I, every human, every person in this planet, every person out in San Diego today, every human on this planet, we all have basic belief structures. Humanity operates by faith. Even the most ardent atheist is believing that there is no God. We operate by faith, and we all operate by belief structures and systems. And all of our belief structures and systems are formed by the messages that we most trust. So our parents, our professors, our social media feeds, our internal narratives, our external stories, they're all shaping a belief system about reality. And this cultural moment, I don't know if you've noticed, finds us in a pretty intense reality war. We are inundated with messages about what the good life is, who we're supposed to be, how we're to define ourselves. And all of these messages surrounding us are informing our knowledge, what we believe about self, what we believe about God, and what we believe about reality. Christians, that's you and I sitting in this room, the majority of us, of all people, we must be attentive to the details of our belief structure. Stop and examine. What do you believe today? We have to stop and continually need to check with the narratives and influences that are shaping our thought patterns and our ideas. Great secular philosophers of Greece would say the unexamined life isn't worth living. The Christian would say the unexamined life isn't living. These last few years with the social upheavals, they have revealed that huge, this has been so disappointing for me as a leader in the church, huge swaths of people who call themselves Christians have actually allowed the secular and the social and the political messages to either pollute the message of Jesus and his teachings, or in some cases, those political social messages have wholesale replaced the message of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. That is a tragedy. And it need not be as we test ourselves. What do we believe? And friends, it's not just the political and social messaging that we need to be testing and discerning about. At the bottom of all belief systems is either a false God or the true and living God. Every message, every system has at its root a false God or the true and living God. The human landscape is fraught with ideas about God. Just this past week, you guys know I'm into Yuval Harari. He's very, very incisive thinking. He, he's pretty raw. He's a philosopher and a futurist, and he was discussing the, the potentials of uh, artificial intelligence, in particular around religion. Now, in this interview, Harari explained that in past in the past, religious ideas, they were spread through neutral means. So like the Gutenberg Press. It didn't have an opinion about the Bible. It was just printing the pages of the Bible and disseminating them throughout the world. And the internet, the internet is just a medium. It's just the tool through which ideas are spread. There's not moral judgments made by the tool of the internet. But AI, Harari says, is different. Quote, AI can create new ideas. It can even write a new Bible. 
You know, throughout history, religions dreamt about having a book written by a superhuman intelligence, by a non-human entity. In a few years, there might be religions that are actually correct. Note Harari's secular perspective, his hope, his God, AI, writing a religion that's correct. That, just think about a religion whose holy book is written by an artificial intelligence. That could be a reality in a few years. Now, on the one hand, AI, some are saying, poses a terrible and terrifying threat to human society. Honestly, we do not yet know what we have unleashed on ourselves, and it goes way further than high school kids writing their essays using chat GPI. On the other hand, whatever religious code or spiritual system, and hear this, on the other hand with AI, whatever religious code or spiritual system the algorithms and gods of modern technology may produce, they are going to just take their place in a long line of messages and religious systems and spiritual teachings about God or gods since the beginning of humanity. For John, the key to truly knowing God was to always be investigating our personal belief structures. Upon what and in whom are we placing our trust and faith? Ask yourself that deeply. How are you supposed to discern that? The old school staple Christian practices. Silence and solitude. If you've been part of Neighbors for any amount of time, silence and solitude is the means of disconnecting from the barrage of messaging that we are inundated with to listen carefully, to discern what we're believing in. Scripture reading, scripture meditation, and scripture memorization. The Bible, because the Bible is all about Jesus, gives us a comprehensive explanation about reality. And so you and I are left with the choice to let the Bible either shape us or be shaped by the messages that are bombarding us. And then, of course, the sweet counsel of the church. We stand alongside other believers who see our blind spots and we see theirs and we support each other in our times of struggle. And so as we disconnect and we begin to draw in silence and solitude, we draw from the scriptures, and we listen to the sweet counsel of the church, and we mature, our beliefs are formed, and then our beliefs begin to reshape our behaviors. Verses three through six. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Test one, what do you believe today? And test two, who are you becoming? Who are we becoming? Now, I could have easily entitled test number two, how we behave. We know that we know God based on how we behave instead of who we are becoming. And that would have been just as a valid title for the point. But let me, let me elaborate on this a little bit. One of the most revealing tests proving our knowledge of God is our ongoing and increasing obedience to God. John is pretty firm and clear. If you say that you know God, but don't do what he commands, then you are living a lie. At the highest mark of obedience is the example of Jesus Christ. John says that if we know God, we will behave like, more importantly, we will become like Jesus, the Son of God. Test number two, who are we becoming? Now, if we were to reflect on the life of Jesus in comparison to ours, over the duration of our life so far in Jesus, are we becoming more like him? Are we becoming more truthful? Not totally truthful, but becoming more truthful, more courageous, more humble, more generous, more selfless, more pure, more loving, 
We could sit here for the rest for hours and just meditate on the external behaviors of the life of Jesus. But what we need to realize is the external behaviors of the life of Jesus, in obedience to the commands of God, his external obedience was rooted in who he was. The very center of his will was totally surrendered to the will of God. And dearest church, this is the end goal of the total transformation project called Christianity. Not just external obedience, how you behave, but who you are in your deepest being where obedience in every facet of our will from our innermost being becomes obedient like Jesus' innermost being was obedient. And do not get the wrong idea here must have been so easy for Jesus. You know, he was God among us. He was fully human. This means that Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted to disobey God's command. And yet he resisted temptation, and he resisted temptation that you and I will never face as our representative. Let me give you the key example, the pinnacle example of this. Luke tells us that hours before the crucifixion of Jesus, and the crucifixion was the ultimate will of God the Father for the Son. Hours before that, Jesus found himself tempted to abandon obedience to God. Mere hours, the Son of God, as a human, terrified of the pain and the humiliation, the ripping of his flesh, and the naked body being hung to suffer and die. As a human, he bows before the Father, and he is tempted to disobey the Father's will. It was not easy. It wasn't like Jesus just flowed. Obedience just flowed out of Jesus and he never faced any struggle in his life. He faced struggle in obedience a thousand times more intensely than you and I did, so much so that Luke tells us when Jesus bowed to ask the Father, please don't make me go through this, the stress in his body was so intense that the capillaries under his skin burst open and he sweat blood, a literal, physical, medical condition. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. I don't want to be crucified. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Ground. To know God and to obey him is to obey him from the innermost being like Jesus did, and that obedience is most tested in our most painful circumstances, when God's will for us seems humiliating, abandoning, disregarding, overlooked, unseen. When we feel like we are completely alone, there is the test where Christ is being formed in us. And we must bow with Jesus. And it may even feel like in this moment, I am sweating blood. There is pain in my body, shame and hurt and fear and disorientation. Father, not my will, but your will be done because Jesus Christ prayed in obedience and I know he's paved the way for me. Friends, I have discovered 25 years now that overcoming external behaviors and obeying God's command from within, it does not get easier the more deeply I know God. I think that's half the battle for maturing in Christianity is just recognizing, ooh, this is going to get worse? <laughs> okay, all right, all right, buckle up, hand to the plow, here we go. Show me how bad it is, Lord. Oh, geez, it's that bad? Okay, all right, uh, I can handle that. I, I surrender, I trust. And, and here's the deal. How? This is just a pragmatic, concrete how. How do you know that you are more deeply obeying God? The spiritual giant, Dallas Willard, he used four terms to describe the ongoing process of greater obedience to God. Surrender, abandonment, contentment, and participation. 
You guys can just leave that up on the screen there for a bit, Jared. I was going to wax eloquent here on the philosophical nature of what Willard was talking about, and I think I'd rather just share this with you from my own life. I think it would be more helpful, okay? I want to share this, this process of knowing that we're obeying more deeply from, from my own experience. And I'll, I'll, use the, I'll use the example of when I began to practice uh, silence and solitude. Years ago, uh, right as my Christianity was failing me, I was introduced to the world of the mystics. And this church is a church plant based on a lot of that world. Um, <clears throat> my spiritual director and mentor began to tell me, you need to get alone, get by yourself, and get in the quiet. And in the initial years, especially the early years, I would find myself on like a three-day silent retreat, and I would realize I'm resisting God's will. It wasn't an outward behavior like full-on sin. Sometimes I was. But I would go, and I would just begin to realize, no, I'm not surrendered to God's will. I want my will. And in the silence, I would sit there, and I would just resist. No, I'm not drinking this cup. I ain't drinking this cup. No, I'm not drinking this cup. And then over the years, silent retreats led to this. I would, I would know what I was going into. I would, I would kind of fall into a silent retreat, exhausted from resisting God's will. Answer my prayers. Do what I want. You're a good God. You're supposed to love me. Why isn't this happening? And then I hit, I hit the silent retreat, and normally what would happen after a few years of practicing this, I would fall asleep. The ultimate of surrender. I'm serious. I'm be, I was thinking about this yesterday. For years, I would go on a silent retreat, and for three days, I would get there. I'd be like, I'm so mad. You've hurt me so bad. I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want this. I want that. Out for three days, and I would just sleep. And my spiritual director told me, you're finally learning what real surrender and abandonment to God's will is. You're trusting him enough to go unconscious for three days. The ultimate in contentment, like a little baby. Now, let me just share how this matures. This last year, I told you guys, I went and I did a four or five day silent retreat in a geodesic dome off the grid out there in the deserts east of El Cajon, (laughs) like literally into the desert. And I arrived there more mature. Lord, I'm already surrendered to whatever you want. You know, I'm surrendered. I'm abandoned. And here's what happened. It was, and I've tried to describe this and I use the word violent. It was violent. The first three days, I have never felt so deeply in my guts that, oh, that thing, that, that need for more, that lust, that's greed and covetousness that's warping my, and I could feel it. That lust, that's, that's adultery. That, that anger that you're harboring right there, that's the seed of murder. <laughs> for three days, In a dome in the middle of nowhere, no, nothing, just me and my Bible. I just laid on the floor of this dome, and it was raining in the desert. It was so weird. It was pouring rain, gray, and I would lay on the floor, and I would just cry out for mercy. Father, be merciful with my soul. Be merciful with me. And it would just, it rocked me to the point where finally I reached this around the fourth day. I reached this place where I was like, I surrender. All I can do is, I can't even lift my head to you. I need mercy. I am an adulterer. I am a murderer. I'm a liar and a thief. And as I surrendered, I felt my body abandoning myself to his love. And I became deeply content. And on the last day, the last day that I was there, I was reading in John 15, and my body had become so still, so quiet, so surrendered to whatever God wants, 
so abandoned to his will, so content in his love. I didn't need anything else. For the briefest moment, and this is the only time this has ever happened in my life, and I'm praying for more times like this. I think this is what the mystics were going for. I sat there with the Bible open on my lap, and I read John 15, and what leapt out to me was, if my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish, thalo, whatever your desire is, and I'll do it for you. Normally, I would come across that passage, and I would be like, I want this, and I want this, and I want this in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and then it wouldn't come, and I'd be like, you don't even love me. Five days into a no talking, nothing, distra no distraction, nothing, just getting away from all the messaging of the Western church, which really warps my soul. And I sat there in the presence of God, so abandoned, all I could say is, I only wish whatever you wish for me. I just want to desire what you desire for me. And it wasn't like I had disappeared. My desire was my desire, but my desire was truly to walk in the desire of God for my life. And I think this is what Jesus did. This is how he lived every second of his life. And when it really came down to it, he sweat blood to stay in that place of, Father, your will be done, not my own. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Because this transformation project is turning you into the likeness of Jesus where the deepest core of your being is like, Father, your will be done. And you will have to separate yourself from the messaging of the world. You will have to surrender a thousand times over for the rest of your life until you're abandoned. Then you do find these moments of deep contentment where you're like, whatever you want me to do, that's participation. This is what Willard was talking about. I think this is more important forever than ever for the modern church. And surrender, friends, please. So many of you that are beginning to kind of follow suit, follow me as I follow Jesus, you're beginning to go out there and experiment with silent retreats. And you go in, I try to warn people, like, don't go in with this vision that clouds are going to part and you're going to have this amazing embodied experience. You may go in and just sleep for three days. You may go in and just sit there and realize that you don't want to be bored and you're bored for three days. The point will be surrender and abandonment to whatever God gives you, doesn't give you, says to you, doesn't say to you, that moves you on. We've got we've to hurry now. What do we believe? Who are we becoming? Where are you not yielded to the will of God? And then how do we love? How do we love? Every single thing in our vertical relationships with God enfleshes itself in our horizontal relationship with others, especially the community of fellow sojourners God has placed us in. That's the church. The way that we love each other is a glaring test of the depth of our knowledge of God. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going. The darkness has blinded them. You know, when we began this series, everybody's like, oh, it's going to be a summer of love, communities of love. Oh, I can't wait. It's going to be so lighthearted and fair. And, and, and here we are, knee deep in silence, solitude, abandonment, surrender. And what this does is it then plays out to how do we actually love each other. And this is where the rubber hits the road for John over and over and over. He uses really strong contra contrasting language here. You know, if you, if you hate and if you love very strong verbiage to the point where we can read this passage and be like, uh, you know, this probably doesn't apply to me. This test doesn't apply to me because, you know, I don't really hate that person. I just can't stand their personality. I can't stand their, their lack of social sensitivity. Uh, their political pers perspectives are putrid to me. I just, I cannot, I don't, I don't understand how they can think that way politically. But I don't hate them. 
with a quick little kind of flicking and diminishment of the Bible, we gloss over what the text is saying, and then we say, well, this is just a mere irritant in my body. This is just my personal preference, but it's, it's not hatred. Not recognizing that Jesus said it's these insignificant, these seemingly insignificant seeds that grow into envy and malice and slander. And if you are envious today and malicious and slanderous, you have something to say about somebody, even if you're like couching it in, let's pray for somebody. You are now right there in the same place where Cain was right before he killed his brother Abel. You're a murderer. We have to feel the weight of that. Because that's when we say, whoa, this is what opens my soul up to my need for the mercy of God, a father who cares for me. And then, friends, like Jesus said, we cannot, as the Christian community, say that we know we are forgiven. We know we're accepted and cared for and provided for and protected and loved by God unless we are also forgiving and accepting and caring for and providing for and protecting and loving the person in front of us, especially the local Christian community, especially the person who lacks social sensitivity and who we consider an enemy, because this is how Jesus loved us, his enemies, who he has now made his family. Rollheiser, the great Catholic priest, says this, the litmus test is a whole way of living that radiates more charity than selfishness, more joy than bitterness, more peace than factionalism, more respect than negative judgment, more empathy than anger, more willingness to sweat the blood of sacrifice than to give in to the sway of our, nat- sway of our natural emotions. Listen, 2024 is upon us. The political cycles are ramping up. Please, Please, act like Christians. Let the message of God form who you are. Speak the kingdom of God. Pray for and love the person in front of you. Please. Because even, even if it's just a mustard seed like this, if we can get this little mustard seed community to do it in our workplaces, in political environments, in our dinner tables, the kingdom, the kingdom will be manifesting. And it is the test. It is the test. The secular messaging around community, friends, of self-care and hyper-individualism and personal needs as priority, that has, that's a message that has polluted the message, the Christian message of community. Most of us, when we think about joining a church or going to a community group, we go to that community group with an expectation. We're testing them. What will be given to me? What will I gain from this? How am I going to be taken care of by all of these people around me? Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a really good thing, but it's also very, very immature. Little children live in a world that orbits around them because they've yet to mature. The journey towards becoming like Jesus means that more and more we go into our community group saying, how am I going to give to this group tonight? How am I supposed to serve in this space tonight? How do I love others like Jesus loved me because I'm a spiritual mother and father in this place? Real community, friends, is, is always marked by struggle, especially if we are living vulnerably and transparently and humbly, as we said last week. Real community will be marked by awkward moments, by social sensitivities and toes being stepped on, by political preferences being talked about in opinionated ways. Real community is required to absorb so much that we consider wrong because Jesus absorbed all the wrong that we are. Maturing Christian communities are always growing in their ability to absorb wrong into themselves in the name of love and care for the other. Christian communities actually become, in an ideal life, what we're pursuing is we become like water purifiers. 
The pollutants come into our communities of self-preference and political persuasions and social sensitivities and all the things that we bring into our communities, but we absorb them into ourselves and what we give back is love and generosity and empathy and care for the other, life-giving water. We learn to love the unlovable, accept those who reject us, be silent in the face of judgment or accusation, be silent in the face of judgment or accusation, and love with the light and unconditionality of Jesus because he loved us. He, he loved us. And until you've actually, and I think after 25 years, the Lord had prepared my soul to, to let me feel how genuinely unlovable I am for a brief moment, for a brief moment. And it, it terrified me to feel, even to get a glimpse into the depth, the depth of pollutant that my soul is and was. But then the back half of that silent retreat was like, and I'm loved. And it just transforms and brings this depth of contentment. And so, as we come to communion this morning, I look back on that demonized kid 25 years ago, just zeal squirting out of my ears. And yeah, I genuinely believed with all my heart the night I got saved, I'm going to die for Jesus. I love him. I am going to die for him. And now I live in... San Diego, suffering for Jesus. <laughs> I think the better way to put this is I feel like he's asked me to die a thousand deaths over this last 25 years. Not just one, but one after another after another. I really am at the midterm here, friends. 46, you, you look back and you're like, oh, I'm not 20 or 30 anymore. It's not going to happen. That thing, it's not going to happen. That's a death. That vision, that dream, that genie in the bottle prayer, that wish, that is not going to be given. And yet, these thousand deaths, just one after another, you learn to surrender to the cross as Jesus surrendered to the cross. You abandon yourself to the will of the Father, and you become, at least for me, for the first time in my Christianity, I've always been such a hard-driving, hard-working individual. I find myself just content to participate with you guys in this moment right now. There's a sweetness to that, a softness to that, a participation in the gentleness of my God in me, who didn't kill me. He has embraced me, and he's resurrecting me in new life. This is the transformation project that each of you are in now. And so, what do you actually believe today? Are you deeply, more deeply trusting Jesus? Who are we becoming? Just look back over your life. Are you becoming more like Jesus? Even just the tiniest little movement forward. St. Ignatius would say where there's a tiny little bud of fruit sprouting out of the ground, just focus on that, tend to it, put some fertilizer on it. Like you noticed with your wife the other day, you were just a, a skosh more patient. Well done. Becoming like Jesus. And then how are you loving others? Man, as we move into this political cycle and we work our way this summer through becoming a community of love, are you trustable? And do you love unconditionally? Ask God to give you an embodied experience of his unconditional love for you to whatever measure your soul can handle at this stage in your journey so that when you stand in front of friend, family member, foe, and enemy, this unconditional sense of contentment and participation in the Trinitarian love of God 
calls you to no less than to die for that community, to care for them, to absorb the wrongs, to absorb the irritants, and to, to put out this purified, beautiful thing. And it's this, I believe, that God is using to revive this city in ways that we can't quite comprehend yet. Uh, it's coming, though. Let's pray. I am grateful today here with my family. I'm grateful. I really am, Lord Jesus, that you've never let me I try as I may. I have tried to kick and buck my way out of Christianity. I've done everything I could to, to, to take you hostage, to negotiate with you, to, to get my will done, stamping Jesus' name on it, of course, for the glory of God only. And yet you have been so kind to just draw me into the truth of the Trinitarian love that you have for me. And now, Father, with my family here and the family of the Church of God, we pray to be a maturing people, that you would even now give each of these souls by your Holy Spirit a discernment of what they believe. Are they being shaped by the secular narratives, political narratives, social narratives, beyond the Bible and the kingdom of God and the teachings of Jesus Christ? Give them a glimpse, Lord, of how far you've brought them in your faithfulness right now. No condemnation, but how far you've brought them already. Little points of transformation, little tiny points of emotional maturity, relational maturity, perspective. You've brought them so far already. Let them see who they're becoming and give them a vision, Lord, of who they will be, truly themselves in Jesus, kind and altruistic, philanthropic and benevolent and sacrificial and patient, wise. A kingdom of priests, pastors and prophets sent out into the city to do the bidding of the king. And oh, gracious God, may we love one another so well. Not by what we are given, but by what we can give. Not by how we are served, but how we might serve. Even now, stir each of these hearts to ask, how might I contribute to my community? How might I die for my friend, my family member? I pray that you'd bring the enemy to mind even now. And that you would place us on the cross for them, that we might die for them. Tell them that we love them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And be mature disciples of Jesus, like Jesus in this world. Let them know today the assurance of knowing that they indeed know the living, breathing God of the universe. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.